I want to invite you now to stand for our first reading of Scripture. Our first reading of Scripture comes this morning from Genesis chapter 22. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 19. And if you are using the Blue Pew Bible, you will find that on page 19 this morning. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. A very well-known story from the life of Abraham. And the end of this story is actually quoted in our sermon passage that we'll read second. So it is important to us for context for our sermon this morning. Again, this is Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19, and let me encourage each and every one of us to pay careful and close attention. When Scripture is read, God speaks, and this is God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Thus ends the first reading of God's word. Amen. 
If you're able, let me encourage you to remain standing now and turn to our second scripture reading and our sermon passage this morning from the letter to Hebrews chapter 6. Our sermon text this morning is especially going to focus on verses 13 through 20 of Hebrews chapter 6. But for the sake of bringing in just a little more context, we're going to begin reading in verse 9. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, that is on page 1,190 this morning. Letter to the Hebrews, chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Again, this is God's inerrant word. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear... He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God truly endures forever. You may be seated. And let's seek God's illumination on his word. Let us pray. Holy Spirit of our God, we thank you for breathing out the words of Scripture. Every word of God proves true. You are a refuge to those who trust in you. And we pray that as we consider this passage, which speaks of fleeing to refuge to you, which speaks of Jesus as an anchor for our souls, that you would do that exact work, that your spirit would anchor each and every one of our hearts firmly into the hands of Christ. We pray that your word would be clear to us, that it would connect to us, and that it would captivate us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start this morning by asking each of you to consider a question that perhaps Some of you may not yet be able to answer, and the question is this, what is the greatest trial that your faith has ever faced? What is the hardest thing that you have ever experienced as a believer? And what I mean by that is what experience have you had in life that where the cost of following Jesus became most real? It's really easy to say I'm a follower of Jesus when life is easy. But what about when it costs you something? You know, when you actually have to pay a price 
for what you believe, that's when you know whether you believe it. And so, have you had those kind of experiences? Have you had an experience, or perhaps many, where being a follower of Jesus was actually going to cost you, where loyalty to Christ, doing what you think and believe He wanted you to do, was actually going to have a real cost in terms of time, treasure, relationships, whatever? What has been your most and greatest trial? Where were you perhaps most tempted to turn away from faithfulness to Jesus? Now, perhaps some of you, especially some of you younger folks, by God's grace have not yet faced such a trial. But I promise you that trials will come. The Lord Jesus promises this. The apostles repeat that promise. And so what will you do? What will you do when the great trials come? What will you do when you have an experience that, that really is going to cost you and it's going to hurt you to remain a follower of Jesus? When you have to stand up to that person who wants you to do something different, when you have to declare your loyalty at the loss of a job or a friend or perhaps of your property or your life or the life and property of someone you love. The, the, the recipients to the letter to the Hebrews, we know already. If you've read through the letter, you know from chapter 10 that they were already facing extreme trials. They were suffering the loss of their property. People were being hurt. There was serious persecution. They were facing great trials, not unlike the great trial that God brought upon Abraham when he called him to sacrifice the child of promise. And it's very interesting now that after that very serious warning section that we looked at a few weeks ago, the writer now returns to the promise, and by referencing the story of Abraham, he is hoping to reassure his readers. There's a connection here between the last section and this. You know, verse 12 says that you may be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, and then immediately verse 13, 13 when God made a promise to Abraham. So this is connected. He wants to use what happened with Abraham to reassure those who are facing great trials in their own life. But how? How will he do that? Well, he exhorts them many times throughout the book. You've probably heard this already a couple times in our reading. He's regularly exhorting the believers to hold fast. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to Jesus. But how? How do you do that? How does that actually work? When our great trials come, what do we need to help us hold fast? The late Tim Keller, he's now the late Tim Keller, once said and once wrote that human beings are, are hope-shaped creatures. This is another way of saying that we need an anchor. We need something to ground our hope upon. When things are hard, when the storms rage, what will hold us fast? What can we hold on to that will keep us secure? And of course, this passage speaks, does it not, of an anchor, a sure and steadfast anchor. And so the question that we should be asking, and I hope that each of you will be asking yourself as we're going through this text today, is where is my anchor? Where in ultimately, in an ultimate sense, where is my anchor for this life, for death, and what comes next? In this world where everything seems to be so much in flux so often, in this world of, of shifting sand, amidst all the sands of life, is there any sure place to stand? Is there any anchor? What is your anchor? 
Now, the writer of the Hebrews says to his recipients, yes, there is an anchor, but to understand that anchor, you have to understand God's oath. And so we're going we're gonna to look this morning at that concept first and foremost. What does the Bible mean by oaths? It's helpful for us foundationally to understand the biblical concept of oaths. Then we're going to look at the significance of God's oath. Why does God swear an oath? That's an interesting question if you think about it. And then we're going to see how the gospel is here in the oath of God. So we're going to look at the biblical concepts of oath, the significance of God's oath, and then the gospel in God's oath, the good news. And so kids, you got your outlines. We're going to start into them right now. Number one, under the biblical concepts of oath, what are oaths for? What are they in the Bible? What does the Bible mean by oaths? Number one, in Scripture, as in life, oaths are a way to guarantee our words. When God made a promise to Abraham, verse 13, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. This is language of making an oath. And the Bible uses this language of oaths, and the, and the Bible shows us oaths at multiple points in the history of Scripture when a person decided they wanted to guarantee their words, or when another person was asking person one to guarantee their words. You see it in Genesis chapter 21. Abraham is meeting with a, a king named Abimelech, and Abimelech asks Abraham to deal kindly with his descendants and to guarantee it by an oath. Later on in Genesis chapter 24, when Abraham is seeking a wife for his son Isaac, he calls his servants and he makes him swear an oath to guarantee that the servant will not take a wife for Isaac from the peoples of Canaan. And this is what Scripture, scripture uses oaths for, to guarantee our words. In fact, in the Law of Moses, Exodus chapter 22, verses 10 through 11, an oath was stated as the way to guarantee property disputes and to guarantee that you had not stolen your neighbor's property. Listen to this. This is Exodus 22, 10 and 11. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, how will they know what the truth is? The law goes on to say, An oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. You can understand the situation. I loan you my sheep or my donkey. Hasn't happened in a while, but it could if I had a sheep or a donkey. And while it's in your possession, it goes away. It disappears. And this is before the world of surveillance or tracking or air tags or whatever. You know, there's no air tag on the donkey, so it's gone. And you say to me, well, it disappeared. Strange world. How do I know that you haven't stolen my donkey? Well, this happened in the ancient world, too. And God says in the law, in a case like that, you give me your oath. You give me your oath by the Lord, and I need to accept that. So an oath is used to guarantee our words. That's the first thing. Second thing, you may have already heard this already in the language from Exodus. Oaths always involve an appeal to a greater authority. This is what verse 16 makes very explicit. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in fact, in all of those cases we just cited, Genesis 21, Abimelech said to Abraham, swear to me here by God. Abraham said to his servant, Genesis 24, I will make you swear by the Lord. And in Exodus 22:11, the words I read, an oath by the Lord 
shall be between them. Why, why do they have to do this? Why do they appeal to a greater authority? Why in the scriptures do oaths always invoke God? And the answer is number three. It's because in the Bible, oaths call upon God to judge us by our words. Exodus 22 said, An oath by the Lord shall be between them to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. And so when you swear an oath by God, you are saying to God, Judge me if I'm lying. Vindicate me if I'm telling the truth. You are calling down the eyes of God upon your words. It's a very serious thing to make an oath. In fact, our confession of faith talks about this at some length. It says a lawful oath is a part of our religious worship in which upon just occasion, not frivolous, but just occasions, the person swearing solemnly calls God to witness what he asserts or promises and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he swears. That being the case, the confession goes on to warn us that before you take an oath, you need to be very careful You need to think very seriously about what you're swearing, and you need to remember that God is not tricked. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, our Lord Jesus warns us about taking frivolous oaths. And it's just a good reminder to us. I don't know about you, but many times during my upbringing, I have heard people say, Oh, I swear to God! In a very light and a very frivolous way. Perhaps some of you and some of us have even done that ourselves. My friends, if that's ever been you, you need to repent. An oath, God is not to be invoked in a frivolous or silly way. It is a very serious thing to call God to look upon you and judge you. Now, here's the thing. We understand a little bit now about what an oath involves, and they kind of make sense as sort of a necessary thing among people, right? People need to have God watching over us and judging us because otherwise our selfishness and our sin will run rampant. But does God ever sin? No. Does God ever lie? No. So even verse 18 says it's impossible for God to lie. So then why does God take an oath? Why doesn't God just say, here's what I'm going to do? Why does God take an oath? Well, verse 17 tells us it's because he desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. What does that mean? Well, that brings us to the next part of our sermon this morning. What is the significance of God taking an oath to Abraham? And then we'll see, why does the writer to Hebrews bring this to our attention? Number four on your outlines, kids. In the Bible, when God pronounces or God brings, brings forward a blessing or a warning, in Scripture and in the history of God's people, and you know this if you've read the Old Testament, There are times when either God's blessing and or God's warnings may contain, big long word, ifs, I-F. God's blessings and God's warnings may contain ifs. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, when God put Adam and Eve into the garden, they were told that they could eat of every fruit of the tree of every, the fruit of every tree in the garden, only so long as they did not eat of what tree's fruit? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could continue to live in Eden only if they did not eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree. Later on, when God brought Israel into the promised land, Deuteronomy chapter 28, 
God told them that their life in the promised land would continue only if Israel remained faithful to God. Otherwise, they would face exile and judgment. And Pastor Patton is going to bring this up at some point in his series on Jeremiah, but he brought it up to me this week, and I thought, this is great. I'm going to bring it up ahead of time. It's a little bit of a spoiler alert. This is how God works in history many times. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 10. This is God speaking. And listen, this is, this is, this is God's explaining of these, of these ifs. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. So in the story of Scripture, in biblical history, God's blessings and his warnings contain ifs. They may contain ifs. And here's the thing, number five. These ifs may be stated explicitly, or they may remain unspoken. Now, what's a great example of an unspoken if? of God's blessing or warning. The story of the prophet Jonah. Jonah is sent by God to Nineveh. And we're told in the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 3, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was all he said. One of the shortest sermons in the history of the world. What happened? The people of Nineveh believed God. They repented. And then we are told in verse 10 of chapter 3, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had spoken. And he did not do it. What do you make of that? Was Jonah a false prophet? No. Was God deceiving the Ninevites? No. But in the warning, there was an unspoken if. If they do not repent, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be destroyed. Jonah spoke part of it, but there was an unspoken if. And God used the fact that that if was unspoken. The warning was used by God to awaken their hearts and to bring them to repentance. So God's warnings and God's blessings may contain ifs. They may sometimes be spoken or sometimes unspoken. And now this helps us to understand the significance of God swearing an oath. Number six, when God swears an oath, God is saying something. He is saying there are no unspoken ifs. When God swears an oath, the stated outcome, number six, is unchangeable. It's unchangeable. Our passage here in verse 14 cites Genesis 22. Very significant passage because that is the first time in the Bible that we are told that God swears an oath. Genesis 22, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, surely I will bless you, surely I will multiply you. He makes that promise to Abraham, and he gives it now as an oath, and that means that this will definitely happen. It will happen. There may be surprises along the way, but this outcome is locked in. And there are a couple other places in Scripture where God also, by an oath, locks in the outcome. He makes an oath to David that one of his descendants will be king. He makes an oath 
to the Messiah in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll get into Melchizedek when we hit chapter 7 of Hebrews. The point is this. When God swears an oath, he is locking in an outcome. And that's what verse 17 means when it says, God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. Or literally, you can translate, the, the Greek here is a little hard, but you can translate it literally to prove even more the unchangeableness of his intention. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be suffering. Israel was sent into exile. Again, God swore an oath that he would exile them. Jeremiah 22. But when God swears an oath, he is locking in the outcome. And what that means, this is where it starts to become good news, that there are no more ifs for us to mess up. When God swears an oath, he will be the one to fulfill all the ifs. All the ifs will be met when God swears an oath by myself, declares the Lord. And that's how we can connect this. And that is why the writer of the Hebrews brings this up now. This is not just cool theology, although it is cool, I hope. I hope you think it's cool. But the promises that Abraham received were finally, in their fullest fulfillment, what? The same promises of the gospel that we believe. The same promises of the gospel that the writer to the Hebrews was regularly pointing his people toward. How do we know this? God speaks to Abraham in Genesis and says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The letter to Galatians by the Apostle Paul says, God preached the gospel to Abraham. And then a little bit later, Galatians 3 verse 16, Paul goes on and says, He didn't say to offsprings, or meaning many, but to offsprings, referring to one who is Christ. And so these promises to Abraham, locked in by an oath, the promise to David, the promise to Messiah, locked in by an oath, are the promises of Jesus that are offered to you and me. It's not just cool theology, it's good news for us today. In verses 18 and 20, 18 through 20, lay it out. How is this good news? Number seven, what it's telling us is that amid all the shifting sands of life, brothers and sisters, there is an anchor for us, and that anchor is rooted in nothing less than the life of God himself. Look at the text. Verse 18 says, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What are the... What are the things that, that make this so strong? Well, verse 18 talks first and, first, first and foremost of the proof that God gave to Abraham. He locked in his promise by an oath. Two things, the promise and the oath, it is locked in. That's one reason why we have confidence to hold fast. That's one reason we know that our anchor is in the life of God himself. By myself I have sworn. And then verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the holy place, the inner place behind the curtain. Guys, that's not a throwaway verse. That is referring to the ascension of Jesus. And if you look carefully in Acts chapter 1, when it talks about the ascension of Jesus, I think the ESV says a cloud took him out of their sight. But the Greek there is even more amazing. It says a cloud received him. 
And what that means is that a human being, yes, a God-man, Jesus is fully God and fully man, but a human being was received into the glory of God, into the inner place. And we have that as our anchor, that our Savior, who is fully God and fully man, on our behalf has already been received into the presence of God. And where he is, as he said in John 14, where I am, you will be also. Another reason we can hold fast. And verse 20 reminds us as well. Not only has Jesus gone there as a forerunner on our behalf, but he's become a high priest forever. A high priest for whom? For you, for me. Chapter 7 is going to remind us that he's right now. Do you know what Jesus is doing right now? He's praying for you. He's interceding for you at the right hand of God. He's promised that where he is, we will be also. That psalm we read, Psalm 15, O Lord, who may dwell on your holy hill? Who can sojourn in your tent? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, speaks truth in his heart. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's not David, that's Jesus. And he has promised, and he has done that for us. He never breaks his oath. Even at the cross, when it hurt him the most, he did not break his oath to rescue you and me. And so when you think of Jesus Christ in heaven right now, you should see him as the fulfillment of all God's oaths. You should see him as the anchor of all God's promises. And you should see him as your anchor. Because to all who put their hearts in his hands, he becomes that. Our anchor, friends, is the living God himself. And as the writer here says in verse 13, there's no one greater by whom God could swear. By myself, declares the Lord. That's the big promise. When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there. And what does that song go on to say? One with himself, I cannot die. My life is hid where? With Christ on high. He is our anchor. Jesus is the anchor of our souls. How do we activate this in daily life when things are hard? Number eight, in the most terrifying tests, when they come. Those of you who have already faced such tests, I wonder if this was true to your experience. But when they come, or when they have come, when they come again, such trials... We hold fast by using gospel logic. What does that mean? We tell ourselves, God has promised, God has sworn an oath, God cannot lie, therefore no matter how I, I, I get through this, I will get through this. God has sworn an oath, God can't lie. He will somehow supernaturally sustain and carry me through this. I don't know how, but I do know who. This is what Abraham did. You realize that? You read, go back and read Genesis 22 very carefully. God, God tells him, go sacrifice your son. First of all, we're told Abraham got up early. That's a little surprising. Would you get up early on a day like that? He takes the fire, he takes the knife, and he says to his, young, he says to his servants, you guys wait here. We're going over to worship, and we will come back to you again. Huh. What's going on in Abraham's head? The wheels are turning. He knew that God had already promised that through Isaac, his offspring would be named. He knew that God was a God who didn't lie. And so, the writer to Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that something clicked. 
and that he realized that even if he had to kill his son, God would raise him from the dead. That's gospel logic. God has promised. God doesn't lie. God will get me through this now. And the writer to Hebrews is saying, so as it was for Abraham, so it can be for the first century Christians. And the gospel is saying, as it was for them, so it can be for us. Do you believe that? That's the question. Do you believe that? When what you fear most comes, and if it hasn't already, it will. Where will you flee for refuge? Verse 18. Christ opens his hand to you and me today so that we can flee for refuge to him. Isn't this an extraordinary promise that in a world and in a universe of shifting sand, God himself, through the work of the Lord Jesus, has actually offered you and I a sure and strong place to stand. And all he asks is that you give him your heart. And as your God, you owe it already. So give him your heart. And then number nine, when your faith feels like sand, cast your hope into Christ's sure hands. Amen. Let us pray. Our God, we confess to you that so often we look for certainty, we look for hope, we look for an anchor in the things of this world rather than in the hands that made the world. Forgive us. Help us to remember that you have sworn by yourself that Jesus is already in heaven, that he has already proven your resolve to fulfill all your promises and that we, every single one of us here today, can actually put our heart in his hands and have that sure place to stand, not someday in the future, today, right now. Lord, help us to give you our hearts promptly and sincerely. We ask in your name. Amen.